because it said off. And I was thinking that, okay, when it says off, which means that if I, if I, if, if I press this, it will go off. But it, I didn't know that it actually meant that it was off. You are a truly a man of your generation. Okay. All right. But now we know. So your USB mic does work. Everything does work. It's just I didn't press the perfect. button. That's, the, that's like the first question that, that uh, any customer service will ask you. Did you press yes, the own uh, button or did you connect the I power, power cord? <laughs> How are you? Good, how are you? Um, hectic. Well, that's that's your usual default, right? Life, life is always hectic for you, so. Uh, these two weeks are uh, insanely hectic, um, not only because of the of the user default, but, um, but, but I mean, just look at the amount of people who have descended to Singapore. <laughs> it's just, just crazy. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the topics, and of course, that's part of your main job, right? So let's, let's begin. Yeah. So... Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to episode 16 of the LLB podcast with us, myself, Alex, your host of EOA, and with us, Jang Gan Lee, the information super connector. And as you can see, we're missing two of our fellow compatriots, Andrew G and Dave Chang. They are lost in the mountains in Bulgaria, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So Dave is doing his, together. Yeah, Dave is using his usual. Yeah, they're together. They're in the so they're using their usual end of year tour. Oh my God. And Dave is spending time in Europe before going back to the US. Andrew is doing what he's been always been doing, lost uh, around the world, building startups in different countries, who knows what, but they decided to meet up, I think. Uh, it actually managed to work out. So uh, we'll just decided to just catch up with Jangan because I think we have some pending topics. A lot of things are happening, like uh, like we were just mentioning. Uh, last, I think for last, the last episode, we wanted to discuss what the geopolitics of what's happening and that somehow relates to all the people coming to Singapore now. Right. And I think very specifically what you're noticing a lot of, in, you know, big companies from China with very important positions permanently moving to Singapore, correct? Or are you talking about there's more countries and more people coming to Singapore? Is that a question? That is a question. Yes. I think, uh, I mean... I'm not sure if you have checked the hotel prices in Singapore uh, last, I mean, this week and the next week. And and obviously there's F1, which is coming. What's F1? It's mostly F1. Uh, yeah, but people are only staying for four days for F1. So, so, so I mean, this week there's this, this conferences. I mean, of course, there's Tech in Asia, there's Steel Street Asia happening this two weeks. But more importantly, I think, uh, I think this week there's this super return. Which um, which typically happened in Hong Kong before the pandemic, but since Hong Kong is still sort of um, requiring quarantine, uh, uh, they decided to do it in Singapore. So so basically, it's an event where um, VCs, PEs, the general partners are meeting their LPs, yeah. um, the, the guys who actually give the money. So so that's a big conference happening in town. And um, next week, there's this the Token Twenty Forty Nine, uh, allegedly the the largest uh, crypto conference uh, of the, the year. World, yeah. Right? So, so, yeah. so just so many people there. I mean, <laughs> so, so, so since we're kind of well known in the ecosystem in China and a lot of, a lot of people, when they come here, they reach out to us saying that, Hey, uh, can we meet up? And, uh, and obviously yeah. many of them have a very interesting profiles, very interesting backgrounds and doing very, I mean, had been doing very interesting things in China. So, 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 so it's, um, I mean, for me, it has been like a few weeks of, uh, of intensive discussions about a lot of topics and, um, and a, a lot of learnings as well, but it has been, it has been, it has been really intensive. 
meetings, chit chat. Yeah. What, well, what, what are, what are those main learnings then? Like we're talking about people who are going to be permanently settled here or what is the outlook or I should, are they just putting out feelers? I, I should, that's a question that everybody's asking, right? I mean, everybody's uh, trying to decide for themselves and everybody's trying to figure out, I mean, what would be the trend for everybody else? Um, I mean, Alex, you have been in the ecosystem for many years. You remember like in 2017 to 2018, there were a bunch of Chinese VCs and Chinese tech companies coming to the region saying that, hey, um, yeah. we are armed with uh, our best experience, uh, our advanced technology, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we wanted to, to expand our presence into Southeast Asia. Um, I think, I think towards the second half of, uh, 2019, so people pretty much labeled those guys as tourists, right? They came, uh, they talked to lots yeah, of people, right. they realized saying that, Hey, this market is so different from China and most of them went back to China. So, 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 so everybody's asking that, okay, this time around, is it the same or is it different? Is it a big party that's going to be over, uh, next month or something's going to be more permanent? I think nobody has, uh, has a definite answer because I mean, just like a market, right? You have a like a large number of participants who are each making their individual decisions based on their own sentiment, based on their own preference, based on their capabilities and capacity, but also based on what they perceive uh, others might do. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also very different macro environment than what we talked about. Like when we were making predictions, I think it, it is, to me, it seems and it feels that it's very significantly different this time around, because, you know, from what we were talking about at the beginning of the year with our predictions mm. of the macro environment, just the whole entire just sentiment of the, you know, the economy and the you know, whole scene from VC to building startups was very different than what we've gone through yeah. now, right? Especially at the end of the year. And I'm, I'm barely plugged in, but I, I could just tell. And it seems that it's causing a big shift for across the region of, you know, how people are thinking about things and where to go. And is this, this, I guess, does tie back to the politics too, yeah. right? You know, I, I don't know the exact situation of what's happening in China now. Maybe you could help fill that in, but it does seem that there is still some type of hold that China has where people are looking hours more. And I think it's just a matter of time if people can feel settled and then kind of like, you know, how the f first wave that like we've been here for so long, for more than a decade doing this. I think this is just going to be the next wave of the generation where it's more meaningful. Because if, say, the, can the Chinese people who are here now exploring, I guess they could go back, but where else could they go, right? But then they're, you know, they're stuck back in square one back in China mm. now, right? And there, there's a reason why they're looking to leave. Mm. I mean, I guess there's other parts of the world too, but I think, you know, as a first stop for Singapore, that's a really great place to be in terms of sitting between two worlds of East and West, right? So I don't know, what is your take on this? I think first, um, uh, you are right that this time feels a bit different because 2017 to 2019, um, you have large organizations, you have VCs, you have, um, I mean, companies, but rarely you see founders, you see managing partners, I mean, coming to this region. You, you may see like, okay, a, um, so in the case of VC, an associate, a vice president or an MD coming here, um, scanning around and, uh, maybe making like a two or three investments, but, uh, but most, most of them would just go back empty handed. But this time, um, for, for every single organization I've been meeting, it's, it's the decision maker, it's the managing partner, it's the CEO, it's the founder. So, 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 so that's the reason why, why things are hectic, right? I mean, you don't want to miss the opportunity to, 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 to so intensely, yeah. I mean, talk to many founders and many managing partners to, to just, just learn and, 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 and exchange. Um, about what's happening in China, uh, and you, you, you probably hear a lot in the press about 
this zero COVID policy. And um, yeah. And that rendered a lot of things actually quite hard to do. So, so basically if you're a VC and, uh, say based in Shanghai and, uh, you are focused on investing in say, uh, cross-border e-commerce companies, which are largely in Hangzhou and, uh, and Shenzhen. And uh, for, I mean, in, in the past, if you look at, uh, the schedule of these guys, I mean, they would fly like, I don't know, four or five times a week, I mean, domestic flights. But now, I mean, everybody has this fear, right? I mean, if I fly to a city and the city goes under lockdown, then I'm stuck. So, so, yeah, so as a result, yeah. I might as well not move, but, and, and, and the same goes to the, to, to the founders, uh, founders and companies, right? I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I, I mean, for the manufacturing companies, if I manufacture, I mean, am I able to send goods out? Is the logistics going to be smooth? Um, I mean, for, for, for consumers, um, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know whether I will be, 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 be locked down for, for a week, two weeks. So I'm not willing to spend, I might as well hold to cash. So, so you see a cycle, I mean, not really a cycle, but you see this macro sentiment where, um, people are not, not expanding their production capacity. People are not spending as they would otherwise do. People are not taking credit as they would otherwise do. So, 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 so the economy is taking a big impact. And of course that dents people's, um, people's confidence. I mean, of course the question is that, uh, what will happen after the party Congress in October? So I, I think generally people are expecting some positive news. Um, and, uh, I think for the people, yeah, for the people who are here, um, so what type of positive news would prompt them to go back and how many of them will go back? And how many will say that, okay, uh, I'm going to take the risk. I'm going to explore Southeast Asia. I'm going to explore global markets. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, it, it, it would seem prudent regardless though. I mean, given that what we've seen in the past year for people start hedging, it doesn't have to be Southeast Asia, but just like you said, globally. And I, I do think you are right though. Like given the political scene, like of what's been happening. China does have to incentivize their best to, you know, to be retained talent and to get back on track for the, you know, the, the five-year plan, the 10-year plan, whatever it is, the world domination plan. The 5.5% right? so economic it, growth target for this year. So, so, so exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. And that, that has to include entrepreneurs and the guys who are, you know, investing in this, right. Investment in the backbone and infrastructure and everything else. So I, I do think a portion, a portion of what you said is going to be true where there, some will definitely be incentivized, but. They probably also not, you know, they're very smart. They probably will start diversifying and probably more in a meaningful way, especially now if the decision makers are here seeing, seeing and feeling and meeting the talent. I mean, the amount of cycles that we've gone through of what we've been seeing is just, it changes so fast, you know, across every year it changes. Like, it's like you're, you're calling a 2017 to 2019 a period, but that's like, you know, even before that, it was just like five years before that, it was even insanely different from when we first started building companies in a region, right? So. I think that, that, you know, with more, and I think this is great for the region if they could permanently stay, because, you know, we, we do just need better investors. We need smarter money. We need better efficient, you know, structures. Uh, we need more talent. We need more diverse views. Right. And I think it only gets better with that. Of course, you know, that's, it also lends to the benefit of China if they can finally get a meaningful foothold outside China to learn on a permanent basis. Right. Cause we, we've known this from more than 10 years ago is that Chinese companies it's wave after wave, you know, from 10 cent to all the way till now to the 2016, 17s, like you said, that there hasn't been anything that meaningful, I guess you could say. I mean, there are big companies, there are big presences, but like 
I don't know. I, I don't get the feeling that China is like the number one winner in Southeast Asia, right? I feel like every country is developing their own thing. It's very unique ecosystems and it's still very wide open, right? And that, that's, that's my, my takeaway, I guess. I don't know if you agree think, or not. I think just look at the, look at FinTech in Southeast Asia. I think back in 2016, 2017, 2016, Alibaba bought Lazada. And yeah. uh, I think that was also the year they started making all this joint venture. Um, I mean, and had, had um, started making all this joint venture uh, e-wallets in each country. So, so at that time, yeah. I mean, you see the sense is that everybody was scared about, I mean, Ant taking over everything. And everybody was trying to <laughs> yeah. either work with True. Ant or, or create a, alternatives. And, uh, but everybody was like alert. I mean, if, even you see that, for instance, the banks in Thailand, they started innovating back then, saying that okay, if if we don't, oh yeah, if if, if you so don't, and it's going to be the SBK Bank, every everyone. Yeah, but but fast forward yeah. for, for I mean a few years now. I mean, if you ask the um, um, the fintech players, the banks, the regulators, um, in each country in Southeast Asia, are, are they still fearful about this end takeover? No, and of course, part of that is uh is uh is Ant's own problems in China, uh, uh for a number of reasons, but also part of that is um. As people start to figure out that uh, that the business model that in China, where you build two dominant uh, duopoly of uh, of wallets, uh, that has a, a bunch of other services, transactions, use cases, on top of that, um, yeah. and covering every single aspect of consumers' life, it's not it's not happening yeah. in this region. In each of the countries, it's not happening. Yeah, you know, like I I think this anecdote makes me realize why the most successful tech companies in the world don't always necessarily can branch out horizontally to other product services and markets. It's like, even like, you know, with uh, Meta pulling out of, of, of e-commerce, um, you know, we don't see like social commerce dominating on these other big tech company platforms, except from China themselves, right? Um, it, it just, I think it's, the world is too big and it's too different in certain regions for, just because you have a monopoly in one place where it's just going to be ubiquitous to other. And, and like you said, the fintech example just points to that. And and I'm, I'm actually generally surprised too of how fintech has unfolded in the region. Like I, you know, I will complain about all the problems within each country, but if you take a step back and look, like these days, I literally don't need to use cash in Malaysia if I want to. And it just, and, and you think that just a few years ago, it was so fragmented and people weren't sure what was going to happen. And, you know, you could, we make fun of like, you know, the Alibaba touch and go deal for all we want, but everywhere I go now, like I could literally on every vendor just could probably just use touch and go as a main way to pay. Uh, you know, of course they have all the other payments, grab whatever, but I mean like Apple pay is now ubiquitous too. Like there's no, like I, it's, it's just very weird to think like I would always carry a wad of cash with me for the past 10 years, but now I don't need to. Right. And, and it's not how we thought, like, say, five years ago, if we were predicting, it's not how we thought of yeah. how the fintech ecosystem would have unfolded, yeah. right? Uh, I, I'm saying for me, right, in Singapore, I mean, the only thing I bring is this, right? I sometimes I don't even bring my phone because, yeah, uh, because the card is, the, is tokenized uh, through Apple Pay. And, uh, and I would say that at least in Singapore, I mean, the NFC terminals are, are, are deployed to, to sufficient density and prevalence yeah. uh, that I see. So I don't need to, to, to function without... Um, I mean, I don't need to bring a cash wallet, even even a phone sometimes because now you don't need to check in. Um, but but in Malaysia, do you think that uh, you use touch and go? I mean, 
how did you start to use Touch and Go Wallet? Is that because of the um, the RFID? Because the government said that okay, you start using this to top up or or, or to pay for your tool? Because in Malaysia, everyone drives, right? Yeah. Well, it, I I think, and I think that was maybe the the smart insight that Alibaba was banking on was that um, in terms of largest user base, it, everyone was using the old uh, smart tag yeah. system, which is the device where you put the Touch and Go card into use for toll, yeah. right? Um, but the app rolled out soon after that. And then only RFID rolled after that. So everyone had the app. Back then, that was during the kind of e-wallet war phase when everyone had an e-wallet, um, you know, from RazorPay to every bank rolled out one, the, we, uh, some other we names. We counted at some point on time, I think 2017 or 2018, we counted about 800 wallets in Southeast Correct. Asia. Correct. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, it was, it was just because at the time everyone downloaded every, I think you could see in everyone's app in Malaysia probably has a yeah. few wallets from that's when they were doing user acquisition and they were doing the benefits. But, you know, in terms of dominance, you know, grab stays, mm. touch and go stays, because these are actual use case needs. Uh, you're not going to get rid of either, you know, your ride share or your food as much as we'd like to make fun of them, you know, for not doing so well on stock price and whatnot, but they do solve a real problem. So that is not going to go away as a wallet. Uh, they keep building on top of that. Um, and then, of course, touch and go, you always have to have toll. That's like an absolute monopoly, right? And it's just a matter of just improving experience over time, which they have. And then they worked on the supply side of making sure it was ubiquitously everywhere in every vendor stall around Malaysia, right? Um, and it, it just started because of just that one period in time when everyone was doing wallets. And of course, it wasn't clear who's going to be a winner at the time. You know, I think no one probably would have thought that these would, you know, the guys who are around now are the main ones, right? So... But that's how it is. Actually, talking about touch and go, I'm not sure if you followed uh, the news about Dana, uh, which raised money for cinemas and uh, Lazada. I think Lazada became the largest largest single shareholder of Dana, which is the wallet that uh, Ant Group built with uh, with MTech okay. Indonesia. So, so interestingly, I mean, um, I have a few friends who are running different services with uh, with the wallet platform, and everybody has been telling me that uh, during the pandemic, um, the usage of Ovo, which is owned by Grab. And the GoPay, which yeah. is owned by GoTo or GoJack, um, I have have largely grown a little bit, but uh, but Dana's growth has been been phenomenal. So, so so we did a bit of dig. Did they say why? Yeah, they did. So two things. So first, a lot of people use that for transfers. So so basically, uh, where you are in the sort of the, the neighborhoods, in the locality, sometimes in rural areas, that people don't really have access to to ATM to do the transfer easily. And uh, a lot of people would just use the stores and uh, and transfer money over Dana. So they built that use case to be to be really strong because they don't charge. I mean, in the past, we do the transfer via ATM or via other sort of channels. There's a fee. And, and, and I think they subsidize that fee to, to get the user numbers up. And now with Lazada coming in, um, uh, I think they are trying to build Dana into, into Lazada uses because uh, in Indonesia, Lazada is about... I think... In terms of um, in terms of GMV, probably less uh, less. Uh, I mean, the, the the difference is less big, but uh, but in terms of number of parcels, Lazada is probably one third of Shopee's size, and uh, and and uh, and of course, yeah. I started to know that and I'm not happy about their position. Being the second, uh, which is far behind us. I mean, the first, and now it's TikTok coming. So 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 I'm sure they will do something about it, and and especially Lazada now. Um, they built their own own sort of team to look after payment and the financial services. <clears throat> The guy leading that used to lead Ant in Southeast Asia, so so he knows uh, Ant inside out, and, uh, and and when he's driving that, he knows exactly what he should ask Ant to do, and he knows exactly what he should yeah. 
taking his own hands because leaving that to end will never make things happen. Well, this, yeah. So this also reminds me of yeah. like, I don't know about your network, yeah. but when I talk to people in my network, anecdotally, from my understanding is that Shopee Pay is not doing as well as they, they want it to be. And in fact, they probably scaled back significantly amounts, which I guess just ties into our other topic of, of the Shopee layoff. Mm. And it, it also goes to show that, you know, you have a big cash generating machine or you raise a lot of money doesn't mean you necessarily win in this market. It, it's it points to talking what you're talking about. You got to look at these features, these pain points, mm. and once you understand them, you got to productize it very well and execute it on very well. Mm. And, you know, just because you're a big guy, you know, with big guns doesn't mean you're actually going to survive in the long run, right? Um, does that like line up to what you're hearing about Shopee with their layoffs and with pay not doing well? And, you know, does this, how does that fit into the bigger picture? I think, I think, I think the pay uh, of platform uh, has, has been a difficult point. I think for Shopee pay and as well as for Grab pay. So I, I think I understand that Grab pay is not as aggressively yeah. as they would have in the past to, to, to deploy, I mean, Grab pay offline merchants and stuff. So. So, so, so they are now more, fo more focused on, on, on building the financial services on the platform. And of course, part of that is the profitability agenda. Part of that is also looking at, uh, I mean, um, the previous Chinese thesis, right? I mean, you, you try to cover everything. Uh, I would say that, uh, that what Touch and Go has been able to do in Malaysia, um, because everyone drives, everyone has to use that. It's, it's, it's really, really a special use case. Um, um, yeah. um, and, and also if you think about that, I've always been thinking about is that I mean you know during the pandemic, every government has a QR checking system that train everyone to use QR. Yeah. Um, and of course maybe it's not the right thing for government to do, but uh, but just just imagine if they attach the pay payment system um, behind their QR checking app, that would have, that could have been very interesting. Assuming they could really even get it done. I mean the I, I don't know about a country country by basis, but for the countries that yeah. I know about, it was. Your typical run-of-the-mill problems, you know, contractors and mm. all these kind of problems where, you know, money wasn't used efficiently, wasted too much mm. money to build it, um, probably could get done. And I think, I think that's the general direction, though. I, I do notice, like, over time, governments do deploy technology better. Mm. It's, just, it's just very slow for us to see because we live in the countries at the moment, right? Um, mm. But, I mean, I wouldn't put it too far off where that, that does happen, change in the future where... You know, you're mostly paying for, actually, you know, like Malaysia has moved a lot of stuff online. Mm. I mean, I'm pretty sure at this point, Singapore is probably all online in terms of government paperwork and payments, right? So I, I don't see why it wouldn't be the case in the next 10 years where it's just going to move in that direction, right? It's just, it's not at this speed as, you know, for, you know, how we do it in the private sector, so. But I think you point out something, so, something quite interesting. Um, so, so a lot of times, and you look for things in theory that, uh, that, 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 that makes sense. But, uh, but we try to deploy that in practice, uh, there's lots of friction. And, uh, I think the same for, yeah. for, for government apps, um, because you have contractors, I mean, even though there's no, like, you know, under the table stuff and um, going around, there's still like an, all this, like, you know, yeah. I mean, you have used our, our team before, right? You know, you know how it feels, right? I mean, of I have course. my expectation and yeah. they understand it poorly. And, uh, the, the, the product that comes back is, is, uh, it's not up to my, my expectation. Then it's like back and forth, back and forth. <laughs> Then Correct. lots of time wasted. Um, but 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 generally, when when you apply that to to, to startups, even if you have their own own tech team, when things get into the real world, you have a lot of friction, right? I mean, uh, I mean, these days you probably hear from the news that lots of the grocery delivery um, startups in Southeast Asia, which are not doing well. I mean, in theory, 
where every single of them went to investors to raise money, they have done projections, they have done calculations. Everything yeah. would make sense. But, uh, but, but in reality, um, in the market, reliability of the supply chain, the rent, the efficiency of the riders you can get, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, all sorts of frictions that you need to deal with. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So before maybe we, we dive deeper into this, why, why don't we address the, the other main topic then, uh, the shoppy layoffs. What, what, like, I think uh, two weeks ago when I was in Singapore, mm. I think that was like the first round of layoffs, right? And apparently they're having a, another round. Mm. Um, so what do you think is going on internally and what do you think are the consequences or, or why is this even happening to begin with? Mm. I do think that, uh, that the last two years, um, Shopee was growing very fast and, uh, and I think they almost deliberately departized efficiency. So there were lots of efficiencies. I mean, if you want to fix a problem, um, and, and, and you just hire people, I mean, I mean, you could argue that, okay, uh, this is efficient, but when capital was cheap. Maybe that was the right thing to do, right? Because, um, because you, you focus on resources on, on the most important metric at that time, which was, which was growth. But of course, um, uh, as we stand now, end of Q3, 2022, with the war out there, with the, I mean, the Fed raising the interest rate for the third time of uh, 74, was that, was it the third time like that, uh, 75 basis points? Yeah. So. So, 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 so the capital sentiment is really bad and et cetera, et cetera. So, so of course, I mean, you need to adjust. And I, I, I just think that, uh, that they, they anticipated that things might go bad, but they didn't anticipate that things went bad for to worse in a very, very quick succession. Um, we, we did it. Can you qualify that? Sorry? What, what was bad to worse? I mean, the market sentiment. So. Okay. Just sentiment in just general. Sentiment in general. Cause you. The, so what are you saying? Like the thesis was that they were banking on raising more money to keep growing the machine because the sentiment was good. I think first they raised lots of money, uh, and at the, at a fairly fairly expensive prices. Uh, in, I mean, about a year ago, uh, September last year. Yeah, and uh, November last year when is, is when things started to do to 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 decline, and uh, and and of course, I mean, the war started in February. And, uh, and, and the inflation went sort of out of, I mean, I wouldn't say out of control, but, uh, you went persistently high for, for a much longer time yeah. than people had anticipated. And, um, and, and, and now people are talking about a potential recession for, yeah. I don't know, 12 months, 18 months. Some people are, I mean, some, 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 some of the, some of the, uh, really, really like uh, seasoned Chinese investors I've been, uh, you know, talking to, uh, in Singapore in the last few days. They are saying that maybe, maybe this is the start of the big cycle because um, if you look at the Great Depression, if you look at the oil crisis, and uh, and it's about like 40, 50 years and, uh, and, and, and some major correction might happen. So, of course, the thesis might be wrong and because you don't have enough sample size in history to predict what's going to happen. But, uh, but, but, but if the, the collective sentiment is bad, it could, it could really go to something which, is, uh, which, which no, nobody has prepared for. Uh, you're on mute. Sorry. So if I'm reading in between the lines, what you're saying is that Shopee was banking on a better market environment to keep growing. They want to effectively keep growing the machine. Of course. Uh, even if it was inefficient or not and keep using money, keep raising money probably. But uh, the reality is that the market was much worse. So mm. I don't know. Do you think that was a sound strategy then? Like, because it, it feels that like regardless of conditions, you should be 
you know, you should be at day one. You should be prepared to some degree, I guess. Um, you know, you should be able to turn the ship think, if necessary, which I guess they are doing. Yeah. Um, was this just a bad bet, you think? And uh, do you think they have the ability to correct and get back on path then? Because that changes think, a lot of things then, right? Yeah, I think they definitely have the the, the capability to correct. I mean, if you look at the actions they have done in, in, in the past few weeks in succession and cutting costs. And uh, the CEO of the group saying that, okay, I'm not going to travel. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry. Was he saying about a traveling only economy, even though he had a private plan? Yeah. Anyway, so... Um, so, so, so you, if you look at a series of actions and, and of course, I mean, from business point of view, these are all right actions and uh, they, they, they do have the cash. And, uh, I think we did some, 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 some count and they do have the cash to last them for about three and a half years, but obviously they have, uh, I think how much, $600, uh, sorry, $600 million worth of uh, convertible notes, which are going to, uh, mature in 2015 at a strike price of 90. So, so which means that before that, I need to push, push the price above 90 share price. Otherwise, uh, otherwise yeah. they will face a redemption. So, but, but, but now if you think about it, it's actually quite scary because if they didn't raise that 6 billion, um, in September last year, they would have gone. It, it, yeah. <laughs> and to me, it sounds like they, they. Yeah, so effectively, I think they understand that. That's very existential, right? And I think the big push internally must be to push all the big categories towards profitability. And I think like in terms of food, they have to be profitable in terms of, I don't know about pay, that's even a thing anymore. Um, E-commerce probably has to push profitability because especially with, you know, green gaming sector, sector like, you know, that, that segment of the business is, is not going to be supporting that growth materially. I think that's... Mm -hmm probably gonna be the main focus so but you know I, I don't know i don't follow the reports that well you know that closely but i don't know if they have enough scale to justify the valuations and if not it means you know share price will be continue to be depressed relative to you know even if they can get to profitable right because as we pop out to size where you know those those that that, that makes a lot of sense so uh, I don't know. I think there's still a big question mark in the market, right? It is. It is. Um, so, so, but 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 if you look at the if you look at the companies in the market, right, I mean, uh, C Group as a whole has uh, has enough enough cash to last them for three and a half years at the current burn, you know, yeah. at at the Q2 Q2 level of burn. Grab has uh, enough cash to last them for four years at the Q2 level of burn, and uh, and then both companies are reducing their burn and and, and increasing profitability. So, 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 so I guess the, the companies will survive and, um, uh, and at what what valuation and, uh, and, and, and how, the, how the, the, the market changed, we don't know. I mean, I was, I was in Jakarta two weeks ago for a few days and I was, I mean, I don't know, lucky enough to witness the, um, the protest because of the, 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 the fuel price, uh, hike. So the government um, mm. raised the fuel price by thirty percent. So we're speaking with some logistic uh, e-commerce logistic companies, and they said it's, it's it's basically basically every month they're spending million millions of dollars more on fuel. And of course, I mean, I mean, I, mean, I think in many Southeast Asian markets, um, logistics is, is actually a huge percentage of the of the overall economy. And uh, and when that cascades yeah. down to people's consumption power, to the cost of fulfillment. Uh, I think the headwinds for e-commerce is actually pretty strong in many markets. Let, let me, before we move to the final topic, uh, what is your take on Indonesia and how it's developing? Has there been any big changes or do you think it's still in line with the same sentiment that we've been seeing in the past few years where Indonesia is the big 
grill in the market, everyone still wants to invest in there, or has that changed to some degree? Have people's perception changed around it, how people are building or investing in Indonesia? Um, um, first, uh, it's, 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 it's really, really, I, I mean, I personally felt really good to be back to Jakarta because, um, I mean, um, so of, of course we did a number of businesses in Indonesia and we sold one beginning in yeah. 2020. Um, have not gone, had not gone back to Indonesia for, for more than two years. Uh, of course we, we, we had colleagues who have been traveling back and forth, but, uh, but, but, but the, the feeling, the feeling in Jakarta is that you're in a big city, right? I mean, and, and energy is positive and you feel that you could do things. Uh, I guess that's the sentiment of, uh, of many founders and would be founders and company yeah. executives. Um, I think investors, um, if you look at the, the, the amount of funding that has been raised by VCs to invest in Southeast Asia, the amount's actually pretty big, right? I mean, you have 300 million, 400 million, 500 million. In Sequoia's case, dedicated Southeast Asia fund for 800 million. So, so there's lots of money, which, uh, which they either need to invest or return to the, to the LPs. And my sense that, that they will not return. <laughs> they will find a way to invest. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, 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 so basically, I mean, a bunch of my friends who, who are, who are funders or would be funders have been approached by VCs. I mean, they've been having chats about, Hey, uh, do you want to build something? So, so there's lots of discussions going on. Um, I, I think, I, I think overall, it seems I mean, to be the case in the region though, right? Yeah. That where, where your approach to build something, whereas the other way, you know, in other big markets is that there's enough founders who have to ask for the money. But I, I do get the feeling though, that they're, they're. Like this big pool of money needs to f convince or find b uh, founders to actually build. Is that correct? I would say that in the market you have uh, you have more liquidity compared to. I mean, in a VC sort of uh, entrepreneur space, you have more liquidity compared to to good founders, and that has been the case um, since I, mean, I think 2016, 2017. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. yeah, but now there's more money. Uh, arguably there could be more funders. I mean, you, you have more people who have gone through C, more people who have gone through, um, grab more people. I mean, still the, 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 yeah, the people from our rocket days, that's still low turnaround. The question is that uh, you need to find a match, right? You need to find a match of, uh, of the right founder, the, the right market yeah. and the, the right potential, the right team the, and the right solution. So, so, so that might not be always yeah. that straightforward. And my, my gut take is that there's a big mismatch in those types of people coming out of these country, uh, com these big companies who've either been through mm. the rocket mill, the grab or mm. shoppies and whatnot, because some of the smartest guys I know who would probably make the best founders, they're, they're either taking their time in building what they want to build and not rushing till they find a way to do user acquisition at a reasonable rate or at mm. a way that's more viral. And those guys mm. are preferring cash over equity in many of the jobs that they're taking. Some of the smartest guys I know who should be great founders, right? Uh, they have options and they know there's a lot of still, there's still a lot of nonsense. They know there's money in the market, but mm. until they find something meaningful, you know, they don't want to throw away that chance. And for now they're taking cash over equity, at least in, in the circles that I'm seeing or who I think people should be founders, right? So it's a very interesting dynamic where I think, you know, there's, there's still work to be done to get back onto that level where, you know, it's high quality founders who are back in the belief and they find the right material problems to solve that are very meaningful and sustained in the long term. So for now, my take is that there's this gap. I don't know if you see the same thing or not. Yep. Uh, I definitely see, I, I think I see something similar, right? I mean, people who I think would be founders, they are, they are 
I mean, as, as you said, either sort of a sort of a, a city owner side stuff. Them, I even working for corporate. I mean, sort of a labs, uh, just waiting for opportunities for them to to start the, the right thing. And uh, and also also I see a lot of them actually taking their own sweet time. Not not their own sweet time, but taking their own time. Right? Okay. I know there's a solution. Uh, I know there's a problem. Uh, I'm working on a solution, but uh, but before I, I'm convinced myself that a solution might work, I don't want to take the money from outside yeah. because I know that uh, that uh, I mean, if I go, I mean, I've seen things. If I know that I've gone on on the wrong path, and I would easily wait a year and a half or two years. Yeah, and I think mm. part of that is, and my my view on early stage has changed quite a bit too. Where mm. you know, traditionally in in you know Western markets where we look at like U.S. It's like, oh yeah, two years, find product market fit, raise and scale, four or five years, you already have a big company. Mm. It, more realistically, what I'm realizing for the majority of cases, and I probably, I bet, I bet you it's the same in the US, but you just don't hear about it because survivorship bias, mm. that most people wander in the desert or you know they're just trying to search for a product market fit across three, four years, and then it makes sense to raise. And it's just, it just takes longer time to find something more meaningful because mm. one, you have to do the homework to know what you're trying to solve mm. and then before you you know jump into the abyss mm. and raise the mm. money uh you know then that's I, I think that's what we're gonna that's the pattern we're really seeing so you know it's a lot longer tail than people probably realize and the guys who kind of go blind into the ventures like this either just, you know spin in circles and then run out of money or they have a great pedigree background they raise money but then you know there's all the guys in indonesia we see they raise 10 million dollars you know work for two to four years and they just shut down uh, because, you know, they didn't have the clarity, you know. So I, I really think that if you have a very low burn, you're willing to work for three or four years, but means you better really love what you're doing and you better believe what you're doing. And then mm -hmm. I think it kind of makes sense. So I, maybe that helps explain some of that mismatch possibly, I guess. I don't know. I, I had a long dinner with this guy who had been investing in consumption. So basically the... Uh... The franchises, the chain stores, the factories, the, the supply chain, and everything, for twenty four yeah. years in China, and, uh, and and he told me an interesting observation. He said many of the founders who he invested in were not doing great. They spent between five to fifteen years figuring out what was the right formula to do things. And many retail guys, right? They started. I mean, uh, this week there's this. This uh, this ice cream and bubble tea brand in China called Mishui, which is actually featured in our bubble tea yeah. report, which has filed for IPO, and uh, um, so so the founder, the founder spent I, I don't know, they built a business in 1998 or 1990s I can't remember late 1990s, and for a long time it's like I don't know single digit four or five stores ten stores whatever, but but once they yeah. figure out what's the right thing to do. And, and and really really build their process to the way that they can scale. They scale really fast. Yeah, uh, they have twenty thousand plus stores in China, one thousand in Vietnam and uh, Indonesia, and uh, now I think they just opened two in Singapore. So 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 they have the whole thing yeah. figured out, and and now they are in the growth phase. And 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 that friend said that uh, you see a lot of lot of cases like that. I mean, founders spending really years to figure out what's the right formula and and, and polish their operations. But once they they are they are at a point to scale, nobody can stop them. Yeah, and the, and a fine distinction is is that they're actually doing it probably at a reasonable burn or, yes. that but they are executing. They actually are doing right, and it's just not like a long planning phase of thinking. It's actually you know execution, but you know it's with it you know controlled risk and actually making sure they can survive all those years before they you know make the big investment. Yeah, so, yep, yep. I don't know. But so let's 
we have a few minutes to close out. So is there any way to tie this back to the book you wrote, Seeing oh. the Unseen? Oh. Uh, everyone should go buy this book that Zhang Gan wrote, Seeing the Unseen Behind the Chinese Tech Giants Global Ventures. It just came out. He wrote it with Professor Guolei Chen of INSEAD. Um, anything that we can tie back to what we discussed with the book or what is the book about? This thing? That thing. That's it. Um, That's the one. <laughs> Okay, very quickly, uh, what what did we do? And we were under lockdown in the first few months also of uh, of the um, of the pandemic, um, which said okay, because I had been guest lecturing at uh, at Professor Chen's course called China Strategy, and this element about Chinese tech companies outside China, and uh, and we had lots of material. We spoke with lots of people. We developed, I mean, case studies and stuff. We said okay, how about we tie everything together and form a book. So, 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 so it was, it was a much more difficult exercise than I had predicted. Uh, it took us on, almost two years to complete that. And partially because, I mean, after lockdown, everyone went back to, to build, build their own things. And, and, and professor went to, went back to traveling around the world. I mean, talking, I mean, doing research and uh, doing executive programs, but, um, but, but, but it's still very meaningful exercise because we look at 20 plus companies, I mean, from Alibaba, Baidu to, to ByteDance, um, um, and, uh, and Xi'in, which is really hot at the moment. So, so we look at all these companies, we see, uh, what they have been doing uh, outside China and what led them to be, to do whatever they are doing and, uh, and, 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 and what are the mistakes they have been making. So, so, so for us, it's a very good exercise to, 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 to frame our mind, to really, really look deep into all, the, all, all these cases to see how they've been, uh, what we can learn from them. Right. So at the end of the day, we, we, we sort of divided the. The themes into four things, right? I mean, deep, which which a company needs to 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 think about when they when they get out of their home market, um, be it their segment or be it their country. Um, so leadership, people, organization, and product in that order, right? I mean, we see cases where, um, for instance, certain e-commerce company from China in Thailand, um, uh, the CEO back in China. If he had more mental space for, for the, for the business in Thailand, the business moves faster. If he gets busy with the mm. domestic business, the, the business in Thailand moves, moves more slowly. So that mental space, because the markets are different, right? I mean, we also have seen e-commerce yeah. companies, um, doing like 120 basket size, uh, 120 USD basket size in, in Saudi Arabia, they try to fit into $30 basket size in, in Indonesia. I mean, there are lots of things which you need to, you need to think and switch gear and allocate resources. And if things, I mean, are not going as well as you predicted for, for, for three, four months, do 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 you cut, do you change your people or, or do you, do you allocate more resources? And of course, that, that, that trickles down to people. I mean, who is in charge, right? I mean, is someone you can trust, yeah. someone who can mobilize the resources in the organization, or someone knows the market. And preferably, I mean, someone who has all these elements, right? But how do you find a person who has all these elements? Now, the organization, I mean, uh, when the leadership uh, says, okay, home market and this foreign market, both important, but how do you, how do you turn an organization to support that, right? That. I mean. Yeah. So, 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 so then at the end of the day is product and because, because all these companies which have succeeded, they have great product uh, capabilities. But the question mm -hmm. is that, I mean, how do you, how do you have the leadership, um, people and organization to support this, to actually trickle down to the right product and to win the market. So yeah, a lot of case studies, so, we analyzed so, 20 plus companies. So who, who would benefit most from this book? It seems that, you know, anyone looking to scale outside, I mean, specifically in a Chinese context, that would be useful or even 
in those markets where they're actually building. So I don't know, who do you think would benefit the most? I think, I think we thought about that. And so, so the people who, who seek to, to, to learn from Chinese tech companies and building their own tech companies, the people who are yeah. thinking about joining Chinese tech companies, but are a bit scared about their culture, the people who are, <laughs> who, who are in a market where they have to compete against these Chinese companies or work with these Chinese companies. And of course, at the end of the day, the, the regulators in each country who are, who are trying to figure out, hey, these guys who, who in 2016 seemed, seemed like they were going to take over the world, but they're not really taking over the world. Are they, are they learning f f I mean, f fast enough, which means that, that they might take over the world at some point in time, or are they just um, something I should not be concerned with? Yeah. So it sounds like you build a really great framework to think about how you know, companies can scale Outside of that, though, what else is your biggest takeaway from this exercise of writing this book, the content itself, or I don't know, what else did you discover? Um, personally, uh, writing a book is, uh, is, is, uh, is freaking hard. So, so that's the biggest, biggest <laughs> personal takeaway. Uh, but, but second, um, I mean, during the pandemic, having that, that mental space, uh, myself to reflect and it's, it's, it's been really great. And looking at a few things. Now I look at the opportunities that, that I'm trying to assess for myself and, and my teams. Uh, mm. I apply that framework and, uh, and, 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 and that allows me to see some of the blind spots, some of the potential pitfalls, uh, much more easily, I would say. Um, and also, and also at the end of the day, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's a tremendous sense of, uh, achievement once this is finally out. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. For sure. That's a huge congratulations to writing the book. And I think uh, anyone in the entrepreneurship space, entrepreneurship space in, in Southeast Asia or China or even probably anywhere would benefit from reading this because all lessons could be applied, right? So uh, everyone should go out and get that book. All right. Uh, any final comments before we close out, John Gunn? Um Still one more week to, to, to go before end of uh, September. And, uh, and we do have uh, a lot more meetings lined up next week. So a lot of learnings and, uh, maybe I'll write another book at some point in time. You think so? Really? That that's your takeaway. Uh, it's freaking hard, but that's, you're going to write another book. That's good. That's good. Uh, doing the hard things, um, creates the mold, right? For sure. For sure. So then I guess uh, for our next meeting, we could get hopefully Andrew and Dave on to see what their thoughts are on some of these topics. And uh, hopefully we'll stay tuned of this whirlwind of meetings that you're meeting. I think, uh, I think yeah. they would have uh, found some mental space uh, next week after having spent some, some bromance time in, in the mountains in where? Bulgaria. <laughs> Broke back in Bulgaria. <laughs> okay, let's see how that goes. <laughs> We'll see right. how that goes. Um, okay, Johnny, it was, yeah. it was great catching up with you. And then uh, yeah. we'll, we'll stay tuned. And uh, everyone, everyone else, let us know if there's anything else you want, want us to talk about. So until next time. Yeah, adios. Okay. Bye-bye.